Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you all this morning. I preached two Sundays last summer. Uh, between that time till now, um, I had the honor of seeing all three of your pastors uh, in Memphis at General Assembly. I uh, spent some time with Ben and George at chaplain training. Uh, if you all remember, I'm Brian Fowler. I'm a chaplain. Uh, I serve um, in Virginia Beach. I'm ordained as a teaching elder uh, with the PCA, with the Tidewater Prez. Uh, and it's been good to be with you all this morning, uh, to get to know your pastors, to get to know you guys. Uh, and I'm happy to bring the word to you all this morning. We're going to be looking at Judges chapter 6 uh, together. Uh, again, as, as the guest pastor, uh, I get the luxury of not only telling you about Judges chapter 6, but also the whole story of Gideon's life, because I don't have to come back next week and preach Judges chapter 7 to you. Uh, so we're going to go over uh, Judges chapter 6, but we're going to uh, kind of look in a little bit to uh, Judges 7 this morning. If you guys remember, if you've ever been in the book of Judges before, uh, there is this phrase that comes up, especially at the end, over and over, and it says, in those days there were no kings in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And this exposes the context and the reality of this book, that it's written of, of a people of Israel who has come into this land. I believe you guys have just finished uh, the books of Samuel, uh, which tells of the lives of the king and kind of raises this situation, this condition, that Israel needs leadership. Because they've come into the land from Joshua, and they continually go through this cycle of remembering God, to forgetting God, to following idols, to crying out to Him, and then being delivered by Him, only to go back to that same situation. And Judges 6 tells the story of this guy named Gideon, who's the fourth judge in Israel, and, and Gideon is really emblematic of this entire story of Israel during this period. As many commentators have said, Gideon stands kind of at the bottom of the barrel of the judges. That he, that he really illustrates how far Israel, how far we oftentimes fall away from God. That Gideon, like us, and, and what I think is so interesting about his story and so important for us to look at, is that he oftentimes forgets what it really means to follow God. And yet what we see in the story of Gideon is that God is still present. That God is still working, that God is still near, even though sometimes we forget what it means to follow this God. If you will read with me, if you please stand for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 11 through 40. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the terebinth at Orpha, which belonged to Joash the Abysrite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of the Midians. And the Lord turned to him and said to him, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save save Israel? 
Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least of my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midians as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in the eyes uh, in your eyes, then show me a sign that I may know that is, uh, who, who it is that speaks with me. Please do not depart from here until I come and bring you out from my presence and set before you. And he said to him, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went to his house and prepared a young goat uh, um, and unleavened cakes and an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, the broth he put in a pot, and he brought it to him under the terebinth and presented it to him. And the angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cake and put it on the rock and pour the broth over it. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And Gideon perceived that he had seen the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands, an orphan belongs to the Abysrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull in the second uh, in the second bowl, seven years old, and pull down the altar bale that your father has and cut down the asher that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it with burnt offering with the wood and the Asherah that you shall cut it down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it, by, um, he did it um, not by day but by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, the ashram beside it was cut down, and the second bowl was offered on the altar that was built, that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring your son out that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut the ashram beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is God, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar." Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the men of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. And the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the, and the Abysrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. He sent messengers to Asher, to Zebulun and to Naphtali and they too went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you said, Behold, I lay a, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If, this is, um, if there is dew on the fleece alone and is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece and wrung out enough dew uh, from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. 
Let it be dry on the, on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground, and on all the ground there was dew. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning for your word. That though it challenges us in our faith, that it reminds us of your faithfulness, of your love that we've sang about this morning, that we have reflected on in your scriptures, this faithfulness that we see present in our lives. May you cause us this morning to remember your love, to remember your mercy, that in every place that you call us to and in all the places that you desire us to be, in our homes, in our vocations, through all of our lives, you may be with us that you may teach us and show us your love and your mercy. May you build us up in your word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. In 2019, uh, there was a man named Nimrod Perja. He goes by the name Nims. You, you may or may not have seen, there was a documentary on um, Netflix about him, but he completed this project uh, that everyone believed was impossible. Uh, he had this desire dating back several years before 2019 that he wanted to summit all of the 14 highest peaks in the world, Mount Everest, K2, uh, uh, the two highest, uh, as well as many others in Pakistan and China and Nepal. Nims, who's from Nepal, uh, grew up there, then moved to England, wanted to summit these peaks in this uh, crazy time span in six months. Uh, the, I believe the record before that was something like 10 years that someone had summited all of those peaks. But he wanted to go through in one stretch and hit all of these summits within six months. And so he sets out on this project in 2019 uh, to complete all of these peaks. He actually, the story is, uh, you can see it all over the news, um, he actually completed this in six months and six days. He was just short of that goal that he had set for himself. But as he goes out on this journey, everyone believed that this project was something that was impossible to complete. Again, no one had ever done anything like this before, to this magnitude. Before that, it was 10 years for someone to go through all of these peaks. But he did this in six months and six days. And so as he set out on this journey with his team, he called this project, Project Possible. Because he wanted to set this goal that he could do it. And, and as if you watch the documentary, if you read the stories, they're, they're not only hiking these mountains, but actually at different times they're having to save people, literally, who are dying on the mountain. They get stuck in a couple of snowstorms and they're helping people out. And, and, and it becomes this whole big adventure, this whole challenge, as he's going through this journey as he's going through this task, that everyone else is saying, no, I don't think you could do it. And even while he's on the journey, and all of the barriers and all the obstacles that he faces, everyone says, I don't think that you can do this. I don't think this can be done. And, and, and similarly, as we come to Judges chapter 6, we find Israel, we find ourselves oftentimes in this place where all the things that are stacked against us seem impossible to overcome. That what lies before us seems that it is impossible for us to overcome. 
in our lives, through our journey, by our faith. These things seem insurmountable obstacles that are placed ahead of us. And and what Judges chapter 6 shows us is that while oftentimes we find ourselves in these situations, that sometimes we think that the situations are so impossible that God could not possibly be here. He couldn't be present. Because things seem so dark, they seem so challenging, they seem so frustrating. How could God be there? And yet what we see in Judges chapter 6 is that God is in fact there. That he is present. That he is working. That he is actually has been there before we even showed up and he continues to be there even after we're gone. That in these places where we think God is not, that oftentimes we find that he's already there that oftentimes we find that he is working in the impossible to do what is only possible through him, through his grace. As we come to Judges chapter 6, again, as I said uh, in the introduction, that Israel continues to find themselves in this place as they struggle from unfaithfulness back to faithfulness back to unfaithfulness. Again, oftentimes that's precipitated by these nations coming in. These nations, the Midianites, the um, uh, Canaanites, these groups coming in and, and wreaking havoc in Israel, and they cry out to God and they say, God, can you deliver us? And this time, we get into one of the worst situations that we ever find ourselves in in the book of Judges. In fact, it says in what we skipped over in verse 2, that Israel is so scared of the Midianites that they're hiding out in caves that they're hiding out in caves throughout Israel because they think these people are going to destroy us. And again, they cry out to God. And again, in Midian, he comes and he delivers. God shows himself to be strong in these places where we believe he is not working. He shows himself to be faithful to these people who forget about what it means to follow God. And what we want to see together this morning is that what Judges 6 shows us is that God's grace often shines the brightest in the darkness of our lives. That in these places where we fail, in these places where things are challenging or hard for us, that it's oftentimes in those exact places that God's grace shines the brightest to us. And we want to look at that together in three ways this morning. We want to see how, how God in His grace is at work, how God in His grace is at work in these dark places, as we see that God is at work in the most unlikely of people, that God is at work in the most unlikely of places, and that God is at work in the most unlikely of ways. We want to look at those three points together this morning. That God's at work in the most unlikely of people, the most unlikely of places, and in the most unlikely ways. So first... God at work in the most unlikely people, we see uh, that as Israel is in this very challenging situation, Israel is, is facing what they think is, is their sure annihilation from the Midianites, that they cry out to God, and God moves. And God comes in verse 11 to this guy named Gideon, but when we see him, we see him in a particular place. He's hiding out in the wine press, and it says he's hiding out in the wine press and threshing wheat. Now, you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar to know that's not where you thresh wheat. 
You don't go into a wine press to thresh wheat. There's a reason why the text is telling us that, because he's scared. Because when God comes to raise up Midian, uh, to Gideon, and God says to him, you're going to be a leader of Israel, Gideon is scared to death. Gideon is, is hiding out in this wine press because he just wants to ignore the battle that's going on outside his doors. You know, somewhat of a, a, a normal, I, you know, I myself probably would find myself, hey, you know, the Midianites are coming, they're taking over all of our lands, we're hiding out in caves. Instead of being a leader in that situation, trusting God to deliver, he says, you know what? I'm just going to go down to the bare minimum. I'm going to preserve my family. I'm going to thresh this wheat and the wine press, and I'm going to just save my skin and make sure that I'm okay. And it's in that place that God comes to him. And in that place, he says to him, Midian, you're going to deliver Israel. You're going to be the one. And what does Midian immediately do? It actually enters into this same dialogue that Moses gets into in Exodus 3. He says, God, I I think you got the wrong person here. Me? No, not me. You know, have you looked at the, the lineage, the, the genealogy of my family? I'm from this crazy group, the Abysrites, that are of the tribe of Manasseh. We're not the ones you want. I'm not the guy you want. You know, what are you calling me out for? And yet it's this guy that God has his eyes on. It's this person that God selects as the leader to deliver Israel from the hands of their enemies. That when Israel cries out, God comes to this most unlikely person and he raises him up. And and what we see in the text is after God raises him up, he has this whole conversation. He reveals that the angel of the Lord, that God himself has come down to call him out to be a leader. And then he asks his request after that whole situation where he you know, pours the offering on the rock and, and, and the angel of the Lord sticks out the staff at bursts him in the flames. He says, Gideon, I want you to do something. Your people, the Abysrites, they worship Baal. And I want you to go and destroy that idol of Baal that's in the middle of the town. And Gideon says, okay, I'll do that. But he does it when? In the middle of the night. He even says in the text he does it because he's scared. And so in the middle of the night, because he's scared, he goes out, but he fulfills the word of the Lord. But then when he is found out, it's not Gideon who raises up and says, hey, you know what, guys, we forgot about God. It's his dad who has to come to his defense. That not only you know, does Gideon, when we first see him, he's in fear, but even after God speaks to him and reveals to him what he's going to do through him, he still lives this life of a coward. And then we get down to the end of the passage, the most famous part. You know, probably many of us have heard that story before, maybe even tossed it around in our evangelical parlance, you know, throw out the fleeces. And he says, God, you know, where that text starts, God, you said you're going to deliver us, but, you know, I don't know about that, God. Why don't you prove it to me? Let me throw out these fleeces on the ground. If you can make the fleece wet and the ground dry, then I'm going to know. And God, you know, just one more time, if you can make the fleece dry and the ground wet, then I'll really know. And you think how often that's true in our lives. That what Gideon reveals to us is how oftentimes we struggle when this God comes and he speaks to us. When this God comes by his grace and makes a relationship with us when he calls us as his children. And we say, yeah, God, I, I believe, you know, I, I'll, I'll start tithing God when, 
You make my finances work out. I'll be faithful with my family, God. I'll be faithful in my work and be a leader there when you make these things work out for me. And that's what Gideon does here to God. That even after God has called him, he's raised him up as a leader, that Gideon's still struggling really to follow this God. But again, I think if we're honest with ourselves, that's our story. That's how we are. And what we see about this God is that he's still present. He doesn't say, no, I don't want you anymore, Gideon. But he still works. He's still working through him and with him. He has chosen him. And he continues to use this weak and failing person as he continues to use weak and failing us. Uh, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, book, The Lord of the Rings, um, the, the three um, series of Fellowship of the Rings, uh, you know, if, if you think about it, the, that this, the story really revolves around these, these characters, the hobbits. You know, hobbits are the ones who are selected to, to ultimately destroy the ring, to bring it to Mordor, uh, and to destroy it. But, but if you think about it, you know, Tolkien could have, you know, really done, done the whole book with one chapter. Or just one single book. You know, he could have had Aragon, who, who is the leader of this army, who's this great man, to, to bring the ring to Mordor, to destroy the orc armies, and to do away with all the evil that was in the world. He could have had Legolas with all his speed to just run it up to Mordor and destroy it, or Gandalf with his magic to just fly it there and destroy it. But yet he chooses his main characters as these hobbits. These guys who just want to hang out and drink their beer and have their second or third breakfast, who don't really want to go on this journey, and yet they're the ones who are selected to finish this task. And oftentimes that's how God works. That he selects those who are weak, who are failing. That he selects those who are the least likely of people to do the most extraordinary things. That he calls us these weak and failing sinners, to be ambassadors of His grace. To be, as He says in, in the book of First Peter, to be His priesthood of nations, or a nation of priesthood. To, 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 be, to be His very presence in the world. He calls us in that way, that God calls us the most unlikely of people. To know Him and to live in relationship with Him. But not only does God call the most unlikely of people, but he also work, is at work in the most unlikely of places. As Gideon said to the angel of the Lord in verse 15, he said, God, you don't want me because my family, the, the, my tribe, the Abizrites, and, and, and my, you know, the big tribe, the Manasseh, we're not the ones you want, God. We're not the ones that you want to use. And as we begin to see, we go down in the text and we see, well, who is this group that Gideon comes from? What are they like? Well, we see that they're idolaters. Because as soon as God calls Gideon, he says, I remember, you know, I want you to destroy the, the idol of Baal. But what happens when he destroys him? The whole tribe is about to kill him. I mean, they didn't just, you know, like Baal. They were crazy about worshiping Baal. They had totally forgotten who God was, that they were about to kill one of their own because he destroyed the idol of Baal and made an idol to Yahweh, an idol to God, who delivered them. So Gideon's not wrong when he says, hey, God, you know, these people, you know, you don't want to use the, the Abysrites, you don't want to use me. There's a truth in that. 
And yet, we see right after that event, that as soon as it ends in verse 32, that verse 33 and 34 says, God got all of Israel around this tribe. That when Gideon raised up in the midst of the Abysrites, here this most unlikely guy says, hey, you know what? God's calling us to deliver Israel from the Midianites. That all the other tribes join in. And they begin to go on this campaign. And here in this most unlikely group of people, these people have forgotten God. The God actually shows that he's working, that he's present. The God actually uses them to ultimately deliver Israel. And I don't know about you, but you know, I've had the opportunity you know, a couple of times in my life to go um, on, on missions trips to really experience global poverty, to, to serve uh, in Mexico and in Peru. And oftentimes what you find there, you, know, you, you, get, you get prepared and ready to go on this trip, and you think you're going to go out to show these people you know, what, what Christianity looks like for you. And you go out there and you realize, you know, I'm here actually to be ministered to, by them. Because what you find in these people who have incredibly less than us, you find a, a genuine strength in their faith and a love for their God that oftentimes in our lives that we find in the places where, where we thought God was not working, that he's powerfully present there. There was a movie that uh, came out recently, Jesus Revolution. Uh, it's about the story of, of two guys, Chuck Smith and uh, Lonnie Frisbee. Uh, Lonnie's a hippie, uh, and Chuck is this pastor of a church out in California. Um, and and you know, what the movie is about is about this, this big Christian movie. They say at the end of the movie, you know, I have my quibbles with them. Uh, you know, they say it's the largest Christian movement in history. There was, I think, something like 60 million people who came to Christ through uh, the Jesus Revolution. I, you know, I, I think, just personally, probably the Reformation. But, you know, I don't know. That's what, that's what they're claiming there, okay? Uh, but anyway, um, uh, th- so the movie tells the story about how in, in the 60s and the 70s, through, you know, really this, these two men's relationship, but a lot more stuff going on, but these two men, how, how um, Lonnie reveals to Chuck, you know, hey, these, these hippies, who the church doesn't want anything to do with, they actually really want a lot to do with God. He says to him early on in the movie, which is kind of the pivotal point, he says, you know, these people, and when they're using their drugs and all that they're doing, they're searching out for God. They're seeking the transcendent. They're seeking God in that. And it flipped in Chuck's mind. He said, you know what? I, I totally misread this whole situation. I thought all these people, they didn't want anything to do with the church, but, but what Lonnie says is, no, they're hurting. They, they want to know, they, the, but the doors of the church are not open to them. And because they're not open to them, they're not coming to finding God here. And they're finding God in, in, in the wrong places. And, and, and what you begin to see in, in that, you know, in, in it, it's an impactful story to me because my parents, you know, grew up just across the water. Uh, and their church actually was kind of a, you know, was, was spawned out of this charismatic movement. But because, you know, their pastor, and, and, and he had this heart to reach out to people who the church wasn't reaching out to. And that saved my grandparents and, and, and brought my parents in through church their whole lives. And I think oftentimes for us, we think, no, God, God can't be working there. God can't be working in this place. He's not working through these people. And yet, 
what we find when we get in there is, oh, no, he's working. He's present. He has a heart to reach these people. He has a heart to reach the lost in a more palatable, more tangible way than oftentimes we desire. That God is moving, that he's working, that he's preparing a way for himself. And with this movement, that here is this outpouring of, of so many people coming to faith in Christ, of experiencing that faith in Christ. And in a similar way, here in Judges chapter 6, God uses this tribe. No one thought anything would come out of the Bizrites. No one thought they would be there, and yet they become the leaders to lead Israel, to be delivered from their enemies, the, the Midianites. That's so what we turn to finally, and, and not only does God use the most unlikely of people, not only does he work in, the most, uh, work in the most unlikely of places, but he also works in the most un- unlikely of ways. Like I said, I, I have the luxury of, of not being tied down to Judges 6, you know, not having to come back next week and preach Judges 7, so I'll tell you what happens. You might already know. Uh, you know, as, as God has been saying throughout this chapter, hey, Gideon, I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to deliver Israel from the Midianites. That happens in Judges 7, in the first 20 verses there. God raises up Gideon to be the leader of this army, uh, and, and they get this big group of people uh, that is 22,000 people in number. And they're going to go out and they're going to fight the Midianites. But God says, there's too many people there. And he narrows them down and narrows them down. And finally, there's 300 people that God uses to deliver Israel from the Midianites. And God says, I'm going to do it this way, Midian or Gideon, because I want you to know and I want Israel to know that it was me who delivered. It wasn't anyone else but it was by my hand that Israel was delivered. That by this small army that God narrows down Israel to, the Abishrites to, there's a small group of people that God delivers his people, his nation by. And and what we see in in the conclusion of the story of Gideon is that this God is at work in the most unlikely ways that here he takes this Crazy circumstance. Here, Israel's hiding out in caves. They're saying, you know, we're going to be destroyed by these people. And God steps in, and he destroys them with this tiny army. He destroys them with this tiny army in a way that everyone knows when they look back at this event, and they say, only God could do that. Only by his power, only because he worked, could this have been achieved. It's only by his presence and his power, only by his doing, that Israel was delivered. In a similar way, I I think that we see this is the way God works. If you think about this reality of God's salvation to Israel, here in the story of Gideon, if you think that God works in this most unlikely of way, We fast forward to the New Testament. We look at the cross. And we look at that scandalous event where the Son of God was crucified because he was tried by the Roman government, found guilty of treason, was called a blasphemer, and yet here the Son of God was crucified for us. In a recent book written by Tom Holland, he talks about how this reality, the death, 
the resurrection of Christ, how it was transformative to the world. I mean, we see the transformative power if you go into the New Testament, the book of Acts, but you think about the historical context. That here, Jesus is crucified in in Rome in the first century. And and what you had at that time was two competing worldviews. Rome, that loved power and had military force, and, and Greece that had influence, that had philosophy. Jesus was neither of those things. Jesus was love and he was grace. And and what you had in this world was you had the haves and the have-nots. You had those who had importance and prominence and they had a place in culture. And then you had everyone else. If you were a male and you had land and property, you could have a spot. If you were anyone else, you didn't have a place. If you were a slave, you were a woman. And yet Paul says in Galatians that through Christ there is no slave or free man, there's no male or female, that we are all one, that because of our salvation in Christ, that he loves each of us individually, that we're one. And it's this reality, this power, that changed the entire world. That changed the entire world because of Jesus Christ, because of his death and his resurrection, because of histories of people grappling with this truth. Here we stand today, and what we can experience, what we can know, is that because of Jesus because of his death, that for each of us who embraces that in our hearts, that for each of us who who brings that in our lives, that, that we have been renewed, that we have been made one with Christ. And there is no distinction between us. That no matter how you come into this room today, no matter who you are, no matter what history you bring, that if you are in Christ, you're a child of God, you're loved by God, and you're promised eternity forever with Him. That Jesus calls us through this act of His death and His resurrection, this, this most unlikely of circumstances, to be the most blessed, to be the children of God. And He transforms us in that, and He calls us to continually walk by faith in that. And it's this God who saved Israel in the days of Gideon. It's this God who saves us. It's this God who continues to work, who continues to show that even when we think he's not there, even when we think he's not working, even when we think everything is stacked up against us, he says, no, I'm here, I'm present, and I'm working. I've called you to live by faith, and I will continue to be with you. So I was with Israel as I delivered them, I will continue to be with you. I will continue to work in you. And I will continue to love you and to call you until that day when, we, when our faith becomes sight, as we stand in his presence. It's this God who calls us today. It's this God who invites us as we continue to worship him. Let's close in prayer. God, we ask that you would please bless us. Call us to know what it means to be loved by you. Cause us to know what it means to trust in you even when our hearts are, are afraid because of the circumstances that are stacked up against us. 
May we know your love and your faith. May we know that faithfulness that you have given us through Jesus Christ. Because he was crucified, died, and buried, and resurrected for us. And may we stand strong in that faith this day. May we know and love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.